Kessel Biosciences is a proud sponsor of this FRED podcast and its residents with innovative approaches to improving patient care. Together, we help the next generation of physicians push the boundaries of what is possible. Kessel Biosciences is transforming the treatment of dermatological cancers, enabling more precise testing for better informed decisions. For more information, visit castletestinfo.com. You're listening to Cutaneous Miscellaneous, the Dermatology Residence Podcast. Our last episode featured some really useful information about social media from Chief Dermatology Resident Dr. Muneeb Shah. During that episode, he talked about videos going viral, and it turns out this word can mean different things to different people. Yesterday, as I walked into my attending's office to present the patient to her, I said, it's viral. And she goes, yes, I love your new TikTok video. And I said to her, I know it's a good video, but I'm talking about the patient in room two with shingles. And on that note, welcome to episode three of Cutaneous Miscellaneous. We've got a fabulous show for you today with a special guest, Dr. Jocelyn Kirby, who is Associate Professor of Dermatology at Penn State in Hershey, Pennsylvania. So welcome, Dr. Kirby. Thanks, Nick. Great to have you here. Um, The first episode, we had AAD President Dr. Mark Kaufman. Second episode was uh, social media star Dr. Muneeb Shah. And I thought, who should we bring on the third episode? And your name popped into my mind. I know you can live up to the hype. Just wanted to thank you because I've seen you talk many times and it's really helped me as a speaker. And of course, today we're going to be talking about how to give an impactful podium presentation. And my audiences thank you as well because now when I get up there, I'm not so awkward and boring. So I hope you can teach all of our listeners the great things you've taught me. But before we do that, we'd love to start off with some HS board review. Just to remind everyone about hydrogenized suppurativa, it affects the apocrine gland-bearing areas, which include axilla, inguinal, anal genital, and inframammary. And it begins as recurrent, tender, painful, inflammatory nodules and sterile abscesses that later develops into sinus tracts, hypertrophic scars, and these sinus tracts can present as double-end comedomes. So Dr. Kirby, can you tell me about some keys to diagnosis, um, specifically relating to the dermatology training exams? Absolutely. So one of the things you might see when you're taking a training exam, uh, HS might pop up. You might see a clinical image where there are some indented atrophic scars and some double-headed comedones. Uh, Those double-headed comedones in a place like the uh, medial thigh or under the arm is HS until proven otherwise. And I could imagine along with that clinical image might be some history that says this is a patient who comes in, she's had two episodes of what she calls boils, and just two episodes with those comedones, that is HS till proven otherwise. Love that advice. What about comorbidities of HS? I know that's a popular topic, and how could that manifest in these exams? Absolutely. So one of the big things... uh, I'll put the, a story around this. So Nick, when I was a resident, I would you know, go into a room and a patient had psoriasis and I had to remind myself, okay, look at the skin, look at the nails, ask about the joints because I know my attending is going to ask about that. Well, over the course of the last 10 to 15 years, we've learned that psoriasis, I'm going to get to HS in a second, but psoriasis is a systemic inflammatory condition with even more comorbidities. And so psoriasis has led the way into HS and all of us learning that we need to walk into that room, ask about the HS we see right in front of us, but also make sure that we're asking about 
uh, joint stiffness, especially in the morning, because there's about a three to four times higher odds of arthropathy. Uh, that can be central, it can be peripheral. There's also a three to four higher odds of inflammatory bowel disease, of polycystic ovarian syndrome in women, of depression and anxiety. And the magic number here is about three to four times a higher odds ratio for all of those comorbidities I mentioned in patients with HS. That's some really great advice. I know in dermatology, we're all trying to recognize the comorbidities. And as you said, psoriasis kind of leads the way. HS is important too. And atopic dermatitis too. There's some comorbidities coming out. And, you know, we have to remember to be a doctor first and a dermatologist second, you know, and always make sure to ask about these peripheral things that could really affect the patient's life if they're missed. How about- That's a great point, Nick. You should say that again. <laughs> it's very, very important to ask about all these peripheral things that can, if missed, could really have a big effect in somebody's life. So, Because you're a doctor first and a dermatologist second. So doctor great first, dermatologist second, and podcast host number three. That's right. In my case. <laughs> uh, so I know we have one FDA-approved therapy for hydradenitis, which is adalimumab. Um, and I know sometimes the clinical trial data shows up on the exam. So what point should we be aware of uh, when taking the exams? Uh, one of the things that might come up is what's the percentage of patients who achieve the primary outcome, which the primary outcome in a lot of the trials that have been published and probably for the next few years will be published is the high score, high scar, tomato, tomato, but a 50% reduction in the number of abscesses and inflammatory nodules without and this is the two caveats, without an increase in the number of abscesses and without an increase in the number of draining tunnels. So for adalimumab, currently our one FDA-approved therapy, that rate is about 47 to 59% of patients achieving high score. Good to know. How about antibiotic choice based on stewardship guidelines? I know that's a very important topic in all of dermatology, but specifically HS as well. Well, and I think HS is learning a bit from the acne guidelines and rosacea guidelines that have come before us, kind of saying, we know antibiotics work, and there isn't a grand rounds that goes by that somebody doesn't suggest doxycycline for its anti-inflammatory activity for something, you know, not just HS or acne or, or rosacea. It's our go-to tool. Um, but I think we're all really mindful that we're learning about the inflammatory pathogenesis that underlies this condition and trying to be mindful of not overdoing antibiotics. And so I think using them for flares is absolutely appropriate. Um, using them for maybe midterm treatment, meaning like three to six months, um, but maybe trying to avoid forever use, you know, the three to five years of use, because I think there are safer and alternative therapies. So just to sum it up, antibiotics are appropriate when used appropriately. Ah, oh, that's a great take home. <laughs> awesome. Finally, the one thing I want to ask you as well is I know these exams, the board exams, the in-training exams, they sometimes like to pull from the latest literature. So anything new in the HS literature that we should be aware of that may show up on an exam in the next one to three years? Next one to three years is probably going to be full of new treatments. Um, probably the next ones to hit the market will be the IL-17s. We're also going to have IL-1s, JAK inhibitors are in trials. And so I think the big things will be how do we maximize therapy and minimize risk for the patients who have this incredibly impactful skin disease. So be on the lookout for um, more treatment data. Fabulous information. 
I should not get any questions wrong on HS and the exams. And if I do, I'm not going to tell you about it, but I feel so confident. <laughs> I feel so confident going in now. Thank you for the great information that you're giving to our listeners. But let's pause for a moment and hear a word from our sponsors. Castle Biosciences is a proud sponsor of this FRED podcast and its residents with innovative approaches to improving patient care. Together, we help the next generation of physicians push the boundaries of what is possible. Castle Biosciences is transforming the treatment of dermatological cancers, enabling more precise testing for better informed decisions. For more information, visit castletestinfo.com. Let's move into the next part of the uh, podcast here, which is the main part, which is how to give an impactful podium presentation, how to give the best presentation of your life. And the first thing I want to ask about, Dr. Kirby, is in this post-COVID era, there's many different ways we present information. Over Zoom, we present in front of small groups, and we present in front of a very large group that could be over a thousand people. So can you give me some tips on each of these scenarios, starting with over Zoom? If I'm giving a, a grand rounds or a talk over Zoom, what are some tips that uh, would make this presentation really impactful? Well, I'm thinking of the times that I've been in the audience of a Zoom talk and how many windows I can have open at the same time. Uh, maybe you've been there, Nick, where you know, you've know you got the talk going, but you're doing your taxes, you're responding to emails. And I, I think that we just need to keep in mind that if we're multitasking, we're not really doing any of those things as optimally as we would like. Um, and so as a speaker, I try to be mindful of people's time. Uh, is this a meeting that we should be having or could be having? If we are having it, how do I get pe people's attention and keep it? I think that is true of every single talk we could ever give, Nick. The goal is not to lose people's attention. And so having it be case-based uh, and having little chunks of a case that you unveil so that you're keeping people's attention. Asking questions. Very often we're giving a talk to an adult audience with life experience. They want to give you their thoughts and their experiences. And so leveraging the chat, including multiple choice questions, um, just having an open conversation um, about the cases. And rather than saving all the Q&A for the end, take it intermittently along the way. So that way you're kind of reeling people back into the conversation, keeping attention. I love what you said there. Keeping attention is so important, whether it's on Zoom or in person. So I think a lot of people, when they come to a talk, they say, so what, who cares what's in it for me, right? And I know when I've given talks, it's something I've learned recently, is to say things to the audience like, so let's review what we've learned here. Or you're really going to want to listen to this point because this is a very important point that could affect how you change your practice tomorrow. Or these are the three most important things you want to take away from the last things I've said in the past five minutes. What about in front of a small group? Let's say there's a stage and there's about 15 to 20 people in front of you, and maybe you have a podium and you have a PowerPoint behind you. What's the best flow in terms of giving a great presentation in that realm? I th the first thing that your description of that room tells me is that I shouldn't be behind the podium. So in a room of 15 or 20 people, that's an opportunity just to connect. Um, and again, really engage them. Maybe sit down at their level. Um, we don't need the formality of a podium and giving a talk. I think part of giving a talk is having the audience connect with you as a person. And if they can connect with you and your story and your experience, then they might, again, pay attention just a little bit longer. Um, 
And I, I guess one of the things I'll throw in there is the way that I give talks now is so wildly different than the way I used to give talks and the way many talks are given to me. I always got the sense this talk is about this formality. It's about me. And if it doesn't go right, then it's on me. Um, really what it's about is the audience and connecting with them, knowing what they know and what they do not know. Um, and so we're trying to move them from point A to point B in terms of what they understand or what actions they take when they're treating a patient. And in any way that they can be a little more interested in the message that we're giving, a little more likely to maybe uh, listen uh, slightly longer before they pull out their phone or open their email, um, then it's an opportunity as a teacher. So it's not about giving people you know, the most content and throwing a review paper up on slides. It's not about being super stiff and super formal. It's really about engaging with that audience and being hyper-focused on just connecting with them. I'm definitely guilty of pulling my phone out and looking at my email. But what you say makes a lot of sense about connecting with the audience and, again, saying things like, let's let's review what I've talked about here. Here's the most important point. Are you going to want to listen up now because of X, Y, Z? How about when you're in a room with a thousand people, let's say you're at the academy giving a plenary session, where do you look and how do you give a presentation in that in that space? Well, little story here. Uh, I've been giving talks for a few years and I got up on a stage in front of about 900 people and I had like the closest thing to a panic attack that I think I've ever had. I just, I felt frozen and I wasn't really sure how to move forward. It was just, it was nuts. Um, two things helped me. One was I had practiced. And so I could just pull on the habit and the few sentences at the beginning of my talk. And once I get through those first few sentences, that first slide, then it all just kind of starts to feel a little easier. Um, so one of the things I do recommend is talk your talk out loud to yourself. Some of those words are going to make no sense when you actually say them out loud, um, but they made total sense inside your head. Um, so say them out loud. Uh, and number two is if you're standing in front of a group and it just seems overwhelming, it's a sea of faces, pick out, uh, divide the room into thirds and pick out a friendly face in each one of those thirds. And you might be looking at that one person's face, but there are about 25 to 30 people behind and to the side of that person who feel like you are looking right at them and making a connection with them. And so don't scan your head like left to right uh, on a swivel, but make it, uh, you know, focus your attention, move to the left side, focus your attention come back to the center, make a point to the center. So just like you would have a conversation maybe around a dinner table, you don't swivel your head, but move from person to person around that table, just like, and instead of a table, it's an audience. Very good point. And really liked what you said about practicing. I used to get up and give talks years ago and I would look at note cards and I could just imagine how awkward I was and how un uninteresting the talk was. But recently I was asked to give a talk on a topic that I was not that familiar with, but I practiced and practiced and practiced. And I got up there and after it was done, someone came up to me and said, you hit a home run. And it, it's like you said, you practiced and the first couple sentences, you, you kind of feel awkward, you feel a little nervous, but then it, the practice comes back, you start to feel very natural and the, and the talk went great. So 
I want to say that everyone listening, that whatever you're talking about, you can do it and you can do a fabulous job if you practice and put the time into it. Like anything in life, the more time you put in, the more you'll get out. Can I build on that for one second? Absolutely. I think what you said is really important. Um, I, I think that sometimes we have no cards because we need the security of what am I going to do if I forget what I want to say? Um, Or I think the harder thing is we put all those words on the slide. And so you've got all this text on your slide. That can be an issue because, again, people can't do two things at once very well. They're either going to be reading your slides or they're going to be listening to you. You are so much better at making a point than the text on your slides. And also, when you're reading and that monotone, that's not engaging. You know, people are not going to connect and continue to listen to your message. It's when you have that variability in your voice. When you pause and you collect your thoughts, people will actually stop looking at the slides and look to you. They're re-engaged. They want to hear that next point. And so sometimes when you feel like, oh my gosh, I don't know what to say, you've actually just brought everybody back in by accident just by taking that pause. So don't make your slides too busy. People aren't going to hear your message. Try not to read off your uh, notes because, again, people are maybe going to disconnect. Um, and the emphasis of maybe a pause, that's absolutely okay. The power of the pause. So you bring up another point, too, I want to ask about text versus images on a slide. How much you ha- should you have of each? I don't have any hard and fast rules, but when I build a slide set for a talk, I put everything down and then I am just mean. I just take out every word I possibly can. Unless it has value, it needs to come off. Um, Two things that I do with PowerPoints, one is assertion evidence. So you want to put the take-home point at the top instead of a title you know, that is kind of bland, give people the take-home point right up in that title portion of the slide. And then if there is a table or figure or uh, a few bullet points that you want to put down below it, go ahead and do that. Reflecting again on how I was taught, it was sort of like they were unveiling the points and trying to be a little, you know, just subtle about it. There's no room for subtlety. If we're too subtle, people stop listening. Tell them what you want to tell them. Then tell them why you're telling them that. And the repetition is only going to help reinforce the point. So to your point about text on slides, I try to limit to six bullet points with about six words per point. That's my max. And I try and put on less. Love those guidelines. How about telling jokes and humor during your talks? Can you tell me a little bit about how to effectively use humor and maybe how not to use too much humor? Because I know that's an issue sometimes. Yeah, I I really like interspersing stories throughout my talks. Again, I think it helps to unveil a point or reinforce a point, um, but it's never going to be at someone else's injury or, you know, jest. If I'm going to make fun of someone, it is always going to be myself. Um, and I think you're really good at this, Nick. It's self-effacing humor. You know, the, the audience will connect with you when you are humble or self-effacing. I think if we make fun of somebody and that is a group or a person that they identify with, 
again, we're losing them. That's only going to distract them or remove them from the message. Yeah, we have to be careful about that. And luckily, I'm pretty easy to make fun of, so I can make fun of myself and it's not a problem. And People get a laugh out of that. Well, Dr. Kirby, this has been an amazing episode. I've learned so much and I've already feel that I'm a good speaker and I really feel like I'm already that better of a speaker. I'd love to have you back to talk about how to be a good podcast host because I need some work on that. What are you talking about, Nick? You are kicking butt and taking names. <laughs> Thank you. It's very nice of you. So, Dr. Kirby, we want to end with a question that has nothing to do with dermatology or with the practice of dermatology. And I know you practice at Penn State in Hershey, Pennsylvania, and my favorite candy is a Hershey bar. So I want to ask you, what's your favorite candy and tell me why? My favorite candy, if you have not found this near you, I would hunt it down, is the dark chocolate Reese's peanut butter cup. Um, so much better than the regular Reese's, which is milk chocolate. You got to find the dark chocolate Reese's cup. Do they have that out in Hershey? We've got everything here. We have Chocolate World, which has every single candy that Hershey makes. So if you're in town, let me know. I'll take you there. Wow. I'd lo love to uh, connect with you at Hershey World and Chocolate World. That sounds amazing. Again, Dr. Kirby, thank you so much. And thank you to our listeners. We've gotten great feedback from the last two episodes. We look forward to having you to the next episode and hope you tune in. Kessel Biosciences is a proud sponsor of this FRED podcast and its residents with innovative approaches to improving patient care. Together, we help the next generation of physicians push the boundaries of what is possible. Kessel Biosciences is transforming the treatment of dermatological cancers, enabling more precise testing for better informed decisions. For more information, visit castletestinfo.com.